You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight we're talking about 1988's voodoo horror film, Serpent in the Rainbow. Zombie classic? Is it a zombie classic? Oh, when you say zombie, hold up, we gotta get into that. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose, no place. No great war. No great depression. They're coming to get you, Barbara. We're on a mission for God. I'll buy that for a dollar. Welcome to the party, pal. What's the smile on my face? All right, sweethearts, you heard the man. Pull him out. Come on, let's have him. I will show you where I have made my home while preparing to bring justice. Then I will break you. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight, Mr. Jeremy Benson. The incomparable. The incomparable? <laughs> wow. I figure I needed a better introduction. The incomparable Jeremy Benson. So tonight we're talking about Serpent in the Rainbow, 1988. Wes Craven directed. Uh, this recently came out on Blu-ray via Shout Factory, Scream Factory. Great transfer, by the way. Yeah, it was a really nice transfer, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it looked really good. Uh, Probably the best I've ever seen it. Yeah. Yeah, hands down. I've had this on VHS, and I bought the first Blu-ray when it came out that Universal put out. Yeah. Uh, well, wait, was that a Blu-ray? It was a DVD. Did I say DVD? I meant you DVD. said Blu-ray. I I meant DVD. See, the first DVD I have it on I have it on DVD and it doesn't look this good. Yeah, it's not very. Well, at least it's in uh, like actually sixteen by nine widescreen. Right. You know, so that's a step in the step right step in the right direction. Yeah, baby steps, right? But no, I thought this transfer looked real good. The grain was intact and um, the stereo track on the audio was really well done. And you know, honestly, this has always been to me one of Wes Craven's most interesting movies. As we get into this a little bit tonight, I do feel like this was a very compromised vision. I wasn't there, so I can't speak for the people that were making the movie, but yeah, my assumption from having been on a set and been in charge of a set is that there was a bigger idea they were trying to go for, and budgetary restraints held them back. Was it, you think it was completely budgetary restraints? Because I do feel like a little bit of it is a little bit of a producer being like, hey, you know what we should do? We should make this a little bit like Nightmare on Elm Street because that that's made a shit ton of money. Well, yeah, you can definitely feel the, the producer element of, well, we need some more horror in this. Uh, we need this to be marketable. That, I, I'll leave it at that. You can feel that we need the markability. Uh, and it seems like at certain times that gets in the way of the story that Wes Craven was wanting to tell. Now, like I said, I wasn't there. The man's not around anymore for me to ask as if I could have called him anyway, but... Dude, that would be awesome. That would be a great phone call. <laughs> well, now it would be like a very supernatural phone call. No shit, man. It'd be a Wes Craven movie if it happened now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, poor Wes, man. Missing. And, oh, you know, at, at the very front of the, the Blu-ray when you pop Yeah, I it thought in, that was real classy. Yeah, the nice little hey, this is for a great master, rest in peace. I thought that was that was nice, man. I because I think that this was on the schedule to be released before he passed away. Oh, really? Yeah, and they, I think they were putting the the behind the scenes together. 
because he's not in any of the any of the interviews, and he didn't he didn't do the commentary for this Blu-ray release, which I'm sure they recorded this stuff after he passed away, which kind of sucks. But going back to what we were we were talking about, um, you know, this is not the first time I've seen this movie, um, but it's always felt off. I guess you would say this time watching it, I I, I kind of felt that. He's wanting to tell this story, and he's got this idea for this, but there's these things are put in for we need a scary looking trailer and I had problems with the third act of the movie, yeah, the third act of the movie there's a point where he goes back, you know the, your main character comes almost, back to almost the setting. everything that happens after he goes back is almost just coincidental wrap up it's it's all like okay, we have to do these things, so let's do these real quick. Yeah, because, I mean, he does accomplish his goal. Yeah. You know, at the end of the second act of the movie. And uh, and when I say he, I mean... Um, Main Bill, character. Yeah, Bill, Bill Pullman. Pullman. I don't know. It does. It feels like Wes Craven kind of wanted to tell the story about Wade Davis, the guy that wrote right. Serpent in the Rainbow. And he wanted to get that book on film and right. tell... I don't want to say like a biopic version of that, but something along those lines. Right. The studio and everything was like, hey, look, man, you're the horror master guy right now, okay? So... You need to put some scary stuff in it, and it it seems like he kind of well, and it also threw feels in some like nightmare stuff in here. Well, it feels like some of the, especially in the third act, like toward the end, some of that stuff's not as shot with the care that some of the stuff that's like telling like how he's trying to figure out what this is, what's going on. That stuff seems like it was it, it had a lot more care taken to it. Yeah, I will say this is like his best looking film up to this point. Oh, yeah. They got a lot of extras, and the sets look really good. It's happening during a revolution in Haiti with Papa Doc, and, you know, you see some of that. I mean, it, it it's trying to broaden the scope of the story into a bigger a bigger landscape. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, Craven really wanted to shoot in Haiti. That was a big thing to him, and I think they were the... I was reading somewhere, I think that's the first production that ever shot, or the first U.S. production that shot in Haiti. Really? Yeah, so... I think he was going for this authentic vibe. You know, you read that kind of stuff, and then you see the movie, and it's like, um, I. Uh, you could have shot that on a back lot. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know what I mean? It's kind of, I don't know. They're kind of, it feels like it's conflicting ideas almost, because you see Serpent in the Rainbow, and it is a horror movie. Right. And it does something that a lot of horror movies don't accomplish, is that it, it does kind of get under your skin. Yeah. And it, it, it really does not it's not scary in the way that oh something's gonna jump out at you and you're gonna jump and laugh, but yeah, the idea of buried alive and yeah, that really does start getting under your skin and that, that insanity of, of going through that process. I think this is in the upper echelons of his work. Oh you yeah. Know? I don't think this is middle of the road. I think this is better than mediocre for him. Oh yeah. It, it's an interesting when you put it in the filmography of Wes Craven. It's an interesting stepping stone. Like I've always, like Nightmare. I said, I always thought it was his most interesting movie. Yeah, I, I don't think it's his best. I mean, it would either go to Scream or Nightmare on Elm Street. But I agree with that. But interesting because it's just such a departure from. I mean, you know, just anything else. It's a zombie movie, but it's not about the kind of zombies you're used to. Yeah, no. It's a true, true story, but it's so fictionalized that there's no way it's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's just, it's just such this hybrid of all this different stuff. And then the visuals of, like, the guy with the cross on his head. and 
the coffins. It's it's yeah, it's it's a very unique movie. That did make me laugh when it said inspired by a true story or based on a true story, whatever it was in the beginning. I was just like, Oh come on, man, get out of here. I I don't I don't remember who told me this, but it was somebody in the film industry when they had said the difference between inspired by and based upon. Inspired by that means you thought about it after reading that story and then you just made up some stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. That that makes a lot more sense. I think it was I think I saw Martin Scorsese in an interview once though. I think it was him. Don't don't quote me that it was Scorsese, but it seems very Scorsese Scorsese like. They were talking about biopics. And I it's the reason I think it was him is I think it was around Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. And they asked him like, "Well, how how real is this story based upon, you know, what happened?" And he said, "Well, the bottom line is that as soon as you start shooting a movie, it's fiction." You're going to make up stuff. What happened happened, and this is our interpretation of what happened. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's, you know, that's a good way of, of putting it. I think they got a little bit more interpretive here with Serpent in the Rainbow than they now did you, in Wolf of Wall Street. Well, you, you actually went and read what happened in the book. I've never done that. Like, I honestly, I saw this when I was a kid and a teenager and then like a young adult. Yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't think I stuff. ever really even realized that it was based on a book. <laughs> Yeah, I, I knew it was based on a book, but I, you know, I kind of thought that everything that happened in the film, minus like all the, the crazy mystical, magical stuff in the film, that actually happened, didn't actually turn out that way. This this Wade Davis who wrote the book was he was actually going to Haiti over the course of like seven years, and doing this research. And, really? Yeah. The now, was zombie he really? Thing? He was really researching zombie though, like people rising from the dead and walking around. Yeah, it was like zombies and uh, I forget. He was he found some specific neurotoxin. They actually named it at the end of the movie. Yeah, it comes from the puffer fish. Yeah. It seems like I saw a documentary on that once. Maybe it was like right around the time Serpent and the Rainbow came out. Um, but it seems like I saw a documentary about the, the puffer fish and how it, you know, people have been buried alive and they get up and I always remember the famous uh, Simpsons episode where Homer gets the puffer fish and he thinks he's going to die the next day. <laughs> That's totally not how that works at all. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. Like, if you ate that, you would be paralyzed right away. Or at least you'd be paralyzed within a... I think, actually, Serpent in the Rainbow got that a little bit closer to being right than The Simpsons did. Okay, I'm going to interject some Stephen King into this conversation. Oh, wow. But, no, please, <clears throat> by all means, do. The Serpent in the Rainbow came out first, but there is a Stephen King short story called The Autopsy Room, where a guy was bitten by a snake on a golf course. And he's laying on an autopsy table, and he's fully awake, aware of everything that's going on, and they're about to perform an autopsy. And it made me think of that one. Uh, Stephen King likes that. Uh, he likes that motif a lot. There, he gets kind of similar to the jaunt, like where the guy's awake and he's kind of trapped in his mind. Yeah. Did you ever read the? You ever read the story? No, I haven't. Do you know how he finally doesn't get an autopsy performed? No, how? gets a boner and the doctor notices the boner you know that seems like those would be uh difficult circumstances to be in to will yourself to have an erection he didn't will it he was he was starting to kind of come out of the neurotoxin and there was a nurse a female autopsy lady that was moving some stuff and the guy suddenly felt that part of him waking up and he's excited because it's waking up and if it gets woken up then she'll notice it Dude, that guy needs to marry that nurse. Did he marry her in the... <laughs> they dated. They did date. <laughs> yeah. That would be like, look, you were meant for me. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot of moments where he gets like cut up or cut on, and he's like, "I'm awake." Oh, that would be really terrifying, man. To be oh, they, oh, that's that scene in the movie where like even the the guys passed out on the table, yeah, and they think he's dead, and they stick the thing in his eye. Yeah, they stick the needle, and it's like, what in the? Oh, well, I guess man. they figure if you're awake. Even if you're like kind of paralyzed, you're gonna unparalyze yourself once they stick a needle in your eye. And okay, so in Haiti, they don't they don't actually believe it's like neurotoxin or anything like that. They actually believing it's they're stealing your soul. Right, right. All right, so let's play the trailer, take a break, come back, and we'll just we're just gonna now before we come back, let me know are we are we are we spoiling? Are we not spoiling? Oh, if we if we once we play the trailer, we're in spoil territory. Okay, so that is our rule from now on. We oh yeah, play dude, the that, trailer. We've established can, this. Dude. I can talk about whatever. Yeah, well, cool. right. we've we've completely established. I right, got that. it. I just want to make yes. sure that. Okay. <laughs> Although it, it's Serpent in the Rainbow, who hasn't seen that? I guess there is a whole generation that might not have. Yeah, seen Yeah, dude. It. I mean, like, yeah, think people about... that actually listen to podcasts. Yeah, well, I mean, dude, this is what I was thinking about today. Like, about the time that I got into this movie would be about the time that kids that were born in the year 2000 would be finding this movie because you know i i didn't find out about this movie when it first came out did you did you see this when it first came out i saw it when it first hit dvd or blue uh vhs i don't see i didn't rent it until i want to say it was after new night uh after new nightmare came out after Wes craven's new nightmare came out like so i would say around 95 is when i discovered it so i was like i don't know 13 14 now, I remember renting it. I mean, they probably would have been 1989, 90, somewhere along in there when it hit home video. Because remember, it used to take, like, years. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing this. I think this trailer was on the at the end of the VHS for They Live. And I kept seeing the trailer for it over, you know. Because like, you watched that. I watched the shit out of They Live, yeah. Because John Carpenter, there you go. And I was just like, oh, man, I want to see this movie. And it was always, like, Bill Pullman coming up. <gasps> Don't bury me. I'm not I'd dead. See, and and by that point I, I was I was a big Nightmare on Elm Street fan, so as soon as I saw Wes Craven, I was like, Oh, I gotta go see it and then I didn't get to go see it, so I rented it. Yeah, you know, somebody told me this when I was a kid told me this movie sucked. Cause I kinda stayed away from it. Really? Yeah, I stayed away from it for a while. You know, a funny story, a best friend I grew up with that watched horror movies with me, Wallace, he didn't want to watch it. Because he had I guess he had, he had either seen gone to the movie theater scene or had rented. I don't remember which came out first. But he had seen People Under the Stairs, and he hated it. And I, he had seen it, and I was like, no, dude, we got to rent the Wes Craven movie. And he's like, dude, I just saw that other that dude's other movie, People Under the Stairs, and it's terrible. Like, I think he just lucked up with Nightmare on Elm Street. And I eventually twisted his arm. And we, I let him rent Gates of Hell, which was his, like, all-time favorite. And I got Serpent in the Rainbow, and he ended up enjoying it. Uh, more random shit for you people at home to listen to. Uh, this weekend, I showed my kids Predator and Spectre. Showed my wife Predator, she had seen before, and Spectre. And then we had a vote, which is a better movie. Kids unanimously, Predator. Yeah, I can see that. Wife, Spectre blew it away. You know, I mean, dude, I really like that Spectre Blu-ray. I did too, and... I didn't think I could make it through today without talking about it. I'm just such really a fan good. of that movie. Like, I don't understand the hate for it. Well, we talked about it on that podcast. Yeah. I think it's, you know, Daniel Craig, is he started Bond in a different in a different way. And now that he's going back to the Bond that but I love how everybody's it, it used to. Gradually it gradually gets... Because, you know, like in all the, uh, too, all the old know. Bonds, you can cut this out if you don't want it, but all the old Bonds were, you know, you were coming in and he was already Bond. 
And in this one's we get to see him work up to being Bond. Yeah. I just, I just think that's really cool. No, I mean, I, I'm with you. And I think, you know, where they go from here, the next one, I think is very exciting. I think we're going to go cool places. Yeah, I think everybody now, just needs to calm heard, down. Have you the Blu-ray heard looks that great. Daniel Craig hates playing James Bond? Um, oh, dude, of course. Well, they, they ask him those fucking questions, those interviews, like right after he just got done making the movie and he got his ass kicked. Like Dave Bautista like seriously hurt him during that train fight, you know, in that movie. And I had never heard this, and my wife was like, "You know, he hates playing James Bond." And I was like, "Oh no, why does he keep producing the movie?" You no, know, he doesn't hate it. I mean, if when you have like five thousand reporters over the right. a week ask you, "Hey, you're playing, you're playing James Bond. Uh, what's it like? Uh, do you enjoy wearing these suits?" You, it I, sucks, <laughs> dude. I'm sure you. Yeah, you get. Ask like the same questions. Well, a billion dude, think times about it. Think about it. Like, lose your mind. We're 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 wrapping all the stuff up for Girl in Woods. Honestly, if somebody asked me right now, did you enjoy making? I'm, no, <laughs> it was living hell. Five years from now, I'll be like, oh yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Five years. I'm glad. I'm glad you already know how long it's going to take you before you can say, oh yeah, that was fun. Well, you 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 pick a time that you hope you have <laughs> another movie made so that you can hate on that one and remember that. <laughs> all right okay all right all right so okay you have logic there i like that benson and you guys can tell we are so excited to be talking about serving in the rainbow <laughs> we really are we just it we're we, also buddies and we just chat so you guys can just come along we, we yeah we derail a lot okay well, wait you did bring up predator uh did you watch the blu-ray of that no i don't have the blu-ray i only have the dvd dude you should check out the i was gonna say man the the film grain on that Blu-ray is not bad. I mean, it's just a, like it's a ten dollar buy at like Walmart or yeah. Best Buy, but it's not bad. They released it too in a three D Blu-ray. Why? I don't know. It wasn't released in three D, so they they digitally transfer it. Didn't do a theatrical run, but they dumped it out on Blu-ray. I don't know, man. I guess Fox really wanted some three D Blu-ray content. You know, and I actually left the room for the first like forty five minutes, and I came back in. I was like, "What do you guys think? This is amazing." Oh my goodness! I, it's just a lot of fun to introduce your kids to movies like that. Yeah, you know, getting to get those those first that they get to experience, and you get to kind of like re refine that joy with them. And yeah, that is kind of fun. Maybe I'll introduce Sean to Serpent in the Rainbow, and the trailer plays now. <laughs> Finally, five hours after. From Wes Craven, director of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Comes a story of the forbidden world between life and death. There's a door to the mystical. And you just walk through it. Somebody brought him back from the grave. And I want to know how they did it. Death is not the end. I'll take your soul. You think you can take these people's secrets and just walk away? In the shadows of the imagination lies the ultimate nightmare. Don't let them bury me. I'm not dead. The Serpent and the Rainbow. And we're actually going to talk about Serpent and the Rainbow. We are going to talk about Serpent and the Rainbow. This is my big, big criticism of this movie. Wait, what, what is up with the title? 
the title card that comes up, it looks like something out of like a 90s kids safari movie. As many times as I've seen, I've never noticed the title before. But then watching this Blu-ray, I was like, well, why is the title all like colorful and... Yeah, it, it does throw you out the of rest the film. Of, the rest you know? of it's got that little, neat little creepy looking text. And then the title's like blocky, fun. Yeah, it looks like a nine, like an early like 1991 Disney film. Right. Like Jungle to Jungle with starring Tim Allen. It's right. like, what the hell is this crap? But yeah, and it's got that like little sound effect that comes up underneath it. Like... I, like, I don't know what the yeah. sound effect was, but yeah, the music is a little, you know, in the, in the beginning scene with the synth score. You know that uh, the music didn't bother me. No, it it does bother me in this first part when it's like I could, trying I to could bring tell. you in. I could tell for the rest it, of the movie, I'm I'm pretty yeah, on board with it. It didn't really bother me. I actually like the score later on in the film, especially like when they're preparing yeah. that poison and things, but. And right here, like the synth score that that Brad Fidel did, um, the guy that did the Terminator did the music to this. <laughs> yeah, it's got that synth feel, and I don't. That doesn't say Haiti to me. You know what I mean? And it, it switches gear and it well, gets it more into start, that vibe. It does start in the Amazon, not in Haiti. Well, no, no, it does start in Haiti because that remember that guy dies, that Christoph dude. He dies in the beginning. And then they, that's when they poke his body. They yeah, and then his... it cuts over to the Amazon. Where, yeah. You know, I can see what, I can see your point. Like, yeah, listen, if, if you just listen to the music, it doesn't say Haiti. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, right away. Like, it, it gets into it. It, it. it sort of hints at another country, but not, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really just say Haiti. Yeah. But, but it, at the same time, it was written, I think the reason it never really bothered me is that from the era that it's from and just like watching it from that kind of mindset. Yeah, it's true. It was, it was way before like you got into like heavy percussion and. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is 80s and it is at home in 88. I agree with that. I agree, sir. Okay, so, all right, so the movie opens up with Kristoff dead. They stick a needle in his eye, they oh, pronounce him God. dead. You almost cringed. I watched you. Uh, yeah, that was that was that was a tough scene, dude. You have a thing with eyes, yeah, dude. Who doesn't have a thing with eyes, man? I mean, they're just sacks of jelly. Like, don't like you could just and pop nerves. Them. It was just a bunch of nerves. Ugh. Like when people get their eyeballs popped out, and oh, that's gross, dude. Keep yeah. your eyes in your sockets, people. Yeah, I've been in an emergency room watching a guy just hold his eyeball in his hand. Oh, it's just, just hanging. Oh, and just dude. like that is the most. You can't not look. It's like you can't just go, oh, that guy's hurt. Don't look at him. You're just going, that is so gross and looks so painful. Oh, I'd vomit everywhere. I would not be able to tolerate even handling a second of that. But So what do you think about it? All right, it cuts over to the Amazon where Bill Pullman shows up in a helicopter. He goes into this medicine man's tent, and he's given a little bit of a hallucinogen. What do you think about that scene? Okay, what I like about this is that we established Bill Pullman's character. This is an introduction. Right. Right away that he is, he's like Indiana Jones, but he's willing to be a little bit more reckless. Because he drinks. He's also willing to accept the customs and... Man, I don't know. Is he really really accepting the customs or is he just like, hey, look, I mean, I just want to get high out here here with the natives. No, I took it that, you know, because the guy told him not to drink it and, but the medicine man kept kind of insisting, I will insult this guy if I don't get completely fucked up on his little yeah they brought that one guy in to kind of be like i guess he was a warrior they brought him in to kind of add some danger in there but see i have a, i have a double opinion of this scene and honestly this is a new personal opinion i've never had this before until we watched the blu-ray 
Um, but I've never really analyzed the movie to talk about it before either. The Blu-ray um, opens your eyes to this, huh? Yeah, well, it you know you're you're watching a movie to to discuss it, and then you're you're paying a little bit more attention to the writing and the setup. And you even brought yeah. up how like this is edited kind of weird. Um, it is for me. Like every other time I saw it, I always thought the scene was cool. He's tripping balls. There's this lion. He's like playing with it. And then it's the, a jaguar. The jaguar. Yeah, the jaguar. Whatever. <laughs> it's a big fucking cat. That and then there's the hilarious. then there's the dude with the wrap around and he opens it up and he screams at him and he wakes up and then oh, everybody's dead. It's you know, it's a fun scene. Kind of gets you get your blood pumping there for a second. Watching it this time, almost part of me, like half of me loves it. I I think it's brilliant. I'll see why it's there. There's another part that I get so interested in like his actual work instead of the scary spirit animal stuff, I almost wish they would have cut from the dead guy to him working, him doing something in the Amazon not scary. Let us see what his job is. And then when he gets to Haiti, we see how his job starts to... I agree with that for the most part. I mean... I like the visuals though. Like I, yeah, he, I love the visuals. When he's having a bad, he's having his bad trip yeah. and he gets pulled under. I think, man, I think that stuff looks really cool and it's creepy. And it, you know, that's probably a moment where a producer was like, "Oh, that's going to look great in a trailer." Yeah, I'm with you. Why? Why is the jaguar his spirit animal? That is never. I have no idea. That's not addressed at all. I was kind of hoping you read that in the book and went, "Oh, well, this is why." <laughs> it goes back to my 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 duality on this scene. Visually and emotionally, I loved it. I mean, it's fun. The jaguar is cool. It's scary when it first comes after him, and then it starts playing with him, and you're like, "Oh, this is that's kind of an interesting little twist." And then he's sucked down into the ground. And but then on the other hand, the story you're telling is about an anthropologist or whatever he is looking into the zombie epidemic thing from a scientific point of view. And by introducing him right off the bat by having a spiritual thing, it takes a minute to remember, okay, this guy's a scientist again. In, in the opening of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, he goes into the thing, he gets the little doll head, golden head, big rock comes down, nothing supernatural happens. Give them the idol. For the rest of the movie, he, he repeats, he doesn't believe in that mumbo-jumbo, all of that. So then when the supernatural stuff happens, it, it amps it a little bit. I think yeah. they could have done the same thing here. Is you come off of the dead guy, you have him doing something that's not supernatural. If you want to kill all the people and put their heads on the stick, that's fine. But leave out the spirit animal and all that so that when he gets to Haiti, that's when the supernatural stuff starts. I think that's what's going to break a lot of people, whether they like this movie or whether they don't like this movie. Are you going to be able to accept where this movie is going? Are you going to want it to be more of a, an adventure film than a horror film? You or know? are you going to, by that scene, expect the rest of the movie to be much more dreamlike and crazy? And then when you get into like you know the studying of the stuff and the business part of it, which is really interesting, that's some of my favorite stuff in the movie. Yeah, you're disappointed because there's not tiger or jaguars jumping around and skulls flying out. Dude, those jaguar scenes, man, just... When he's rolling around in the grass with nothing, they, I don't know. That just trips me out. It's man. great, though, because you, you see him playing with the jaguar, and then you cut to the alternate point of view, and you see that he's just there rolling around the ground tripping balls. Bill, you know what? I actually like Bill Pullman a lot in this role, man. Oh, yeah. 
you know, Bill Pullman, I know he get some some people complain on him about the internet about him being kind of monotone and but, really, I've never, I've never had a problem with him. Yeah, and me neither, man. But I really liked him in this. I think this is a good. I think this is his first, first leading role, right? Well, no, okay. I guess it's it's one of his first like straight up leading roles. He was in Spaceballs before this. He was pretty much the lead in Spaceballs. But he had a lot of yeah, weight. Yeah. He, 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 had, he had a lot of supporting cast there. You know, that's a weird career move. To go from a Mel Brooks yeah. comedy to a Wes Craven voodoo oh, and horror. Now that film. you mentioned Spaceballs, now I hope they make Spaceballs: The Force Awakens. I think they are. Are they? I, well, I mean, Mel Brooks was talking about it. I don't. Who knows, man? If there's money to be had, you know they will. You know what? Though it kind of sucks because you wouldn't. We don't. We don't have John Candy, man. He couldn't do like the Chewbacca yeah. dog character anymore. Ah, oh, man. It, and it, and to do it without Rick Moranis too, I guess. Well, why would you have to do it without him? Oh man, Rick Moranis, dude, he's he hasn't acted in over ten years. I just figured it was because he didn't get offered any roles. <laughs> no, um, his wife uh, got cancer and passed away, and he stopped acting and just started raising his two kids. But um, well, it's ten yeah. years ago, so maybe they're old enough. He can come back as they offered him the in Ghostbusters. They offered him a part, and he said no. So did Bill Murray. Okay, so now we Bill Pullman has his vision with his spirit animal. Yeah, we, his crew's killed, and he walks. Or his back. pilot, the helicopter. Pilot. Somehow he walks back to the United States. What did you think of the handheld in this movie, man? I liked it when he gets poisoned, or like, and when he's dreaming. I like the handheld stuff, but when he's like walking back, some of the handheld's really out of place and very jarring. I feel like. I just imagine that okay, they've got to get the shot really quick so they do it anyway. <laughs> Honestly, that's that's kind of. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it feels purposeful. I mean, I under I like it on the dream sequence stuff, or when he's tripping or any you know whatever. Yeah, he's I guess doing. I didn't really mind it. Oh, you really? I, mean, I thought it was I thought it was really bizarre. Like when he's walking back, I, the handheld. As much as I weird. like the way this movie looks, there there are some edits and camera angles that come across a little odd. You know, I thought that. I was looking this up. Apparently, this movie, Wes Craven's original cut was three hours long. And what we watched on the Blu-ray is uh, 98 minutes, I believe. I want the three-hour cut. I mean, it's probably boring as shit, but (laughs) I want to see that. That would be amazing. So, yeah, apparently there was a a three-hour cut before the movie. Wes Craven went in and cut it down. Showed it to test audience. Of course, they loved it. I, I, man, I want to say I read that on the Wikipedia. If I, I'll go back and look that, and I'll put a link in the show notes for everybody. But yeah, so there was a three-hour cut of this film out there, and it does feel like it because I mean, you're right. These there are seg- segments that I feel like are very. I think when you when you were watching it, you were like, were they adapting like just chunks of the book here and kind of glossing over? We even mentioned that. Yeah, and it 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 almost feels like that, and I. And I think it's because they had a lot more stuff there. So Wes was going for like an epic. Yeah. Well, they said in the commentary thing that he was wanting this to be like a crossover horror to other audience movie. Dude, he got a pretty big budget for this. I think the budget was like seventeen million. Oh, the budget was seven million. I mean, from Nightmare on Elm Street, Deadly Friend, Serpent in the Rainbow, boom. Seven million's a lot in nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah, it's still not enough to make the epic that. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know, dude. There's some scenes where they, like, dude, the amount of extras they have, like, yeah. on the, the pilgrimage stuff, like, that's a shitload of people. And I'm pretty sure all those people got paid. I mean, the U.S. dollar, Haiti. yeah, the U.S. <laughs> dollar stretches a little bit in Haiti, so. They may have all got paid a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> One U.S. dollar for the whole village. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a good point. Like, even in the movie, when they he goes to the uh, the guy with the hat to to get the powder that the poison is in. Oh, and, yeah. And the guy's like, you give me 100 U.S. dollars. Yeah, and he's talking about it like it's a million bucks. Yeah. What did you think about the VO throughout this movie? I was not... I think it feels forced. Yeah, man, dude, I don't like the VO in it. I think it feels... And now that I know that there's a three-hour cut, it's probably there because there's a lot of information that... Yeah, but there's nothing that was said in the VO where I was just like, oh, because I could not have f- figured that out from just watching the visual. You know what I mean? Yeah, that I, that is one of my complaints of the movie. I like, don't like VO like that. I, I don't mind VO. I don't know what, what do you how do you feel about VO? You you a VO when, when hater? It's, when it's done right, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, when it's not telling me what's on screen. Right. Like um, today I walked out and got out of this taxi cab and when, I made a phone call to so and so. You know, you're seeing a plane land and they go, "When I arrived in Haiti." Like, <laughs> uh, we can see that. <laughs> no we we saw it, dude. It, just just yeah. put up the word Haiti, we get it. <laughs> I mean, sh- stand by me. I think perfect. The VO works great. I like the VO in that. You're getting the perspective of the guy that's telling the story, and he's telling you not what you're seeing, but he's telling you how he felt about that moment. I'm not trying to piss off film nerds, but man, dude, I never minded the VO in Blade Runner. It's an argument about Blade Runner that I'm unaware of. Oh, you didn't know that? No. Oh, yeah, okay, so the original 1982 cut of Blade Runner had VO in it. Right. Because the producers didn't think anybody was going to follow along. So then... When they did the director's cut that came out, that had a theatrical release. I remember. That was like in the early 90s. Yeah. They took the VO out, and they cut some Mm -hmm. stuff out, and they added that unicorn shot in. Until that Blu-ray came out, like, when did it come out? Four or five years ago? The VO cut was lost. Like, if you didn't have it on VHS, you did not have it. And I never mind the VO in Blade Runner. I always thought, like, they explained, you know, what a skin job is, and it's just more Harrison Ford talking. Yeah, never... It made it feel more like a film noir. I never I, I had guess, a problem with it. I guess I never question it because if it's working and I'm watching the movie, then it's working. But in, in exactly. this case, there were a couple of times I was like, well, you, when you hear a VO come, you expect information that you're not getting. Yeah. Whether it be how a character feels or something that you need to know. And a lot of times in this, it did feel like what's happening on screen VO'd to us. Yeah. And, and that may be an unfair assessment because some of the VO goes into it like slightly more detail, but well, I think it gets better as the movie goes on. I do agree with that. Like it's right. not but in the beginning here, like man, dude, when it switches like straight from the Amazon. And, and the other thing is like Ugh. I don't know, that I'm going to use stand by me as the as example again. All right. Uh you start that movie, you see the guy that's writing the story, yeah. and his VO carries you through the movie. This doesn't feel like a movie that's being told from that first person narrative point of view of this happened to me. Cause like you I mean, toward the end of the movie, the guy's getting buried alive and the VO tells you he lives. 
So it's like, it, yeah. if, if you know, if you're thinking about it, then you're going, well, he's not going to die. He's telling us the story. But it, yeah, I mean, it very well may have been that they had a three hour cut, and then in the process of cutting it down, they said, "Oh crap, we need to, we need to stitch this together." Yeah, I don't know, man. I just yeah, it it does get better, but it's not my part. favorite use of voiceover. Yeah, and you know, honestly, like uh, growing up and getting into films and even starting to make my own stuff, I never knew that people looked down on VO like. And I'd written a script that eventually became that little movie we made called The Smallest Oceans. And it had VO in it. Because originally it was told from this, you know, the character Mark played. Uh, it was told from his point of view. And I remember a, a critic friend of mine read it and was just like, you've got to take out the VO. That's a sign of an amateur. No pro would use a VO. Oh, yeah. What 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 about the famous guy that made Sunset Boulevard? I was I was young and I was just so dumbfounded. I was like, really? You don't like Sunset Boulevard? Stand by Me had VO and Blade Runner <laughs> had VO. Well, don't use that one. That would be a bad. Well, you know, I'm just Double Indemnity. Didn't they have VO and Double Indemnity? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I could think of lots of movies that yeah. had VO, and I was just so confused. Like, why? Why? It was just a cheap technique so we we cut out all the vo i think man adaptation that uses it great i think that's hilarious and then we that's what i was getting at is that we cut out the vo and you know made the movie without it and then adaptation came out and i was like i give up i'm never taking anyone's advice again yeah i thought that was great i thought that was really hilarious and one camp love one camp hate i'm i kind of fall in the middle i sometimes i like it some you know if it's done right I'm cool with it. I mean, it's the same thing with anything in a movie. If it works, yeah. it works. If it doesn't, I'm gonna, I'll am say, hey, that kind of didn't work. But yeah, I mean, if I'm invested enough into the story, that's something will totally pass. Uh, something else about this movie. I'm going to ask you a question. All right, go for it. And we've we've sort of touched on it. And we yeah, we actually, we did touch on it. But now that I'm thinking about like the edit and this three-hour cut, don't you feel like Wes was trying to do something more dramatic with this? You know, like we said, I think it, I think he kind of wanted to do like a biopic, kind of. Because it feels like a dramatic movie that's thrown in with some horror elements that's then been chopped down to just the horror elements. Yeah, you know what, man? Like, when we were watching this, like, there's some moments. Have you ever seen that uh, John McTiernan movie, Medicine Man, with Sean Connery? No, I haven't seen it. Dude, like, if Sean Connery's, like, out in the Amazon, he's like, he's, like, looking for the cure to cancer or something with these little bugs. And, like, there are parts of this movie that kind of remind me of that film, but then it's got some Nightmare on Elm Street thrown with some voodoo stuff thrown in. You know, it is, like I said, you know, I think I think that's going to be the thing that splits the audience, whether you like or dislike this film. I think the people that dislike this movie dislike it for that reason, because it's not a straight horror film from the guy that did Nightmare on Elm Street, you know? like. Right. And then I feel like some people that wanted more of a straight film and wanted an adaptation of the book, they're like, oh, we just got a stupid... West Craven horror film, right? I can be happy with what came out in the middle. No, I think I think you know. that that middle ground is interesting. But I did too. I would really like to see the three hour or even a two and a half hour cut of it, just to see how much more, which direction he was wanting to go. Like as a film buff and a fan of Wes Craven, and you know, especially now that he's gone, um, that would be a really interesting like study for me to be able to just watch that and. Because, you know, if you can watch that, you'll be able to kind of see, okay, he was wanting to do this with it. 
So right after that, like all that crazy dream sequence, we get all that Jaguar stuff where I do like how it goes. There's this big pharmacy that wants to maybe use the zombie myth and right. find some kind of drug to it. Immediately, we're poking science well, there's that, there's into the, the myth. There's the, the documented cases of people dying and then rising from the grave. Yeah. So obviously, these pharmacy folks are saying, all right, well, there's no soul. Somebody has to be using a drug that's like an anesthetic. This could save millions of lives. And they're using the millions of lives to say we can make a lot of money. I don't even think they save millions. I think I think the dude in there is even just like, hey, you know, we'll save thousands. You know, we'll make millions off of it. But <laughs> <laughs> We're only going to save a couple thousand. We'll make millions. Come on, look, you do the math. This is how we stay in business here, people. But it's, it is cool how that like they it's set up as this you know it's going to be this medical thing and he's he's got to go to the unindustrialized Haiti and talk to the voodoo people and try to get the the medicine that he can then take back and make this anesthesia with. But to them, it's a magic powder. And when they get to Haiti, and I almost wish it was explored more. He's looking for this Christoph dude because like his contact there that works at the hospital, the chicky, yeah. It, she just lets him go, or like he leaves. No, Chris Christoph won't come. He stays in the graveyard. But they don't know where he is, right? Because they 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 go around. And they're looking all over for him. Two or three scenes where they where he goes and they go to yeah, that weird. Apparently, dance. she doesn't know that he lives in the graveyard. But they find his sister. And his sister says, "Yeah, they do find his sister." But and he is a creepy character. So that's such a great concept to have somebody that's been buried alive, dug out. And now they're insane, and they honestly believe somebody else is like has control of their soul. Well, that, that's something that I really kind of wish was explored later in the movie. See, this is what I wish is because the way the movie plays out, the guy really does have these people's souls, and I kind of wish that it played out. And as much as I love supernatural horror movies and all that stuff, this one I sort of wish it played out to where. It is just the insanity of being buried alive and that, that belief in this, you know, spiritual thing. But really, it was just a poison that knocked you out. I know. And I wish, I really wish they went and explored the scientific element a yeah. little bit. But there gets, it gets to that scene, you're right, where they do find Kristoff, right? right? He's in that graveyard. And it's a cool, creepy scene. And then Bill Pullman even is like, okay, well, look, I mean... I'm not an idiot, guys. Look, I'm from America. I I know better. You guys are stupid. It was a poison. Yeah, and he wants to try to like figure all this out. And after they kind of prepare it later in the movie, it's just kind of it's just kind of dropped, and it's just magical stuff from there on out. Well, yeah, like, they don't it because he even starts like the. I think that's a missed opportunity. The dreams start coming to him, and I I'm this is one part of the movie I'm confused. As much as I like this movie, and I'm going to preference that I like this movie before I criticize it ever. But, and it's not a criticism, it's just a, my well, personal taste type yeah, thing. Things we've noticed but, that bother us. Yeah, Alright, so the, the chief of police, special police in Haiti, kicks out Bill Pullman after driving a nail through his scrotum. We'll come back it to that. It was terrible. It was really mean of that guy to do that. Um, it was terrible for me as a viewer, <laughs> but yes, it was terrible. That guy was a bad guy. Alright, so he gets what he wants. He puts Bill Pullman on a plane, flies him out of there. Now he has control of his dreams. Why is he still giving the guy bad dreams if he did what he wanted him to do? Oh, no, no, dude, it's worse than that. You missed a step. He nailed through the scrotum, throws him out of the back of the truck. Dude goes about his business for a little bit longer, then gets framed. Framed, yeah, framed for chopping off 
Christoph's sister's head. Yeah. Total decapitation. Gross as fuck. Taking pictures of it. Yeah. Then they put him on a plane. Then the dumbass comes back. Because he's having the dreams. If Wait, is it because he's having the dreams or is it also... I feel like he was actually trying to save that girl. See, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Is Oh, you're confused on that too? You have the dream stuff that happens at dinner. So he's he's obviously still messed over in the dreams. And then he's he says, I, I've got to go help her. It's, it seems like one motivation or the other is what we needed here. Either the guy is still messing with his dreams and he has to go back to stop him or it's going to drive him insane. Or he's okay that he's back in the United States, but he's worried about Chicky that he now likes. Her dad, the, uh, the guy... Paul Winfield? Yes. Whatever the character he plays. But he's like sort the, of the good, the good voodoo priest. priest right? Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about this, my logic is flawed in what I originally thought. But I don't know. I just always assumed that his good voodoo priestness was just getting on this guy's nerves. So he was going to take him out. But that doesn't make any sense. Well, they, because they, when he puts him on the plane, he even has a line where he's like, oh, she's Haitian. I'm not going to mess with her. Right. I, I don't know, man. I, or he I, says he's, she's Haitian. She's home. Yeah, but he says that the, he makes a point to say that there's no reason I'm gonna I'm not gonna mess with her. You're okay, and he could be lying. I, I he is a bad guy. Well, he's obviously lying because he's about to cut her head off when Bill Pullman shows back up. But that's because Bill Pullman shows back up, though. But go is back it? to your point. Yeah, or is does he have her in captivity the whole time and we're getting ready for this ceremony? No, right? Because he comes back and he kills he kills her father, and then he they drug him. And he passes out, and then he goes to her, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to kill her at tonight's ceremony. So the yeah. only reason he's – the only reason the villain it's is the, killing her is because problems, he came back. It's the problems in this third act. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, Dude, to be honest with you, I'm, even watching it this time, I didn't notice that. They, Wes Craven totally pulled that by me. He's like, hey, look at this pretty thing over here. And I was like, oh, that's good. I like well, that. Well, I mean, he, he's got the really creepy scene where the chick jumps up on the table, and she's hot, and – Crazy stuff's happening, but just the motivation to me was like, okay, the guy is still messing with him from a distance, and he needs to go back to stop that, or just drop all that and have him worried about the girl. The head of the secret police, like, if he had left Bill Pullman alone when he was back in Boston... Yeah, he would have just stayed in Boston. He would have, yeah, he would have won. There was a revolution that happened, and he, yeah, I mean, he was still yeah. would have had his, he, yeah. he would, bad day, but he was still going to get taken care of, regardless whether Bill Pullman was there or not. He, he would have had a much better chance of just getting out with the crowd than Bill Pullman going to specifically kill him, yeah, and release all of his souls from their jars. Okay, all right. Before we get to that part, the creepy corpse bride, lover. Dude, when that I, I knew that snake was coming out of that girl's mouth. I knew it. Like it's even on the fucking like it's like even on the the Scream Factory new box. It's on there. I knew it was going to happen. Still made me jump, dude. That 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 is a really good well, effect. That is scene. A, that is an iconic horror visual. Yeah. And the way she just grabs open her mouth. Yeah. And- I can't tell you like even just subconsciously without thinking like when I first started writing horror stories like short stories and st- how many times I stole that visual. It is it's a real good scene. Like the candles are all it's got like a but nice visually this movie just I mean, even you know, even though I was saying that I would prefer to not have it be turn out to be a supernatural movie, the visuals in it are are creepy. They play upon a very 
as Westerners, we're not used to looking at stuff like that. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, I think it's got that voodoo, kind of a gothic third world country kind yeah. of feel to it where it's like, okay, we're in a strange place but that we don't understand. You, and- you definitely get that sense of we don't understand what's going on. I did think it was cool that they were talking about how the their the voodoo religion also is incorporated into Christ, Christianity. Yeah, voodoo is just, it's like a it's like a soup of a whole bunch of. There's this one crazy shot that they did. It's got like the Virgin Mary cross with all the candles. That all this huge line of people, right before they go to that first scene where you see the uh, corpse bride. But man, this camera just pans over, and you just see the huge line with all the candles going. And they man, just dude, keep walking. That is probably biggest like shot Wes Craven has ever pulled off in his career. Like that, like just so much production and so much value is on screen right there. Look how ma- it's it's all it's kind of I don't want to get carried away here and make it something it's not, but it's like it's kind of like a David Lean Panavision huge moment. That it, that they captured here. I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's it's special. Like we said earlier, that it it feels like he was really trying to make a like horror epic. Well, you know, like a horror epic, but I feel like he was, I feel like he wanted to try to maybe educate. Yeah, well, that's what about I mean. the Haitian culture. Like, and when I say a horror epic, I mean I'm meaning that it's a movie in a sense that it's not just made to scare people. He's making it in a, and trying to make it in a grander scale. He's placing it during the Papa Doc revolution. So you've got some history going on. You've got, you know, unrest in the society. You've got, there's just all of these elements that, you know, if you're just trying to make a movie to scare people that you wouldn't have all that stuff. You, you would place it in a couple of huts and, it's an interesting film. It is. It really is. Like just talking about it. it besides from bringing up that one, maybe character plot hole that we <laughs> that we discovered here that uh, or that you've discovered, I should say that you brought up. But man, it is. It is visually, visually very, very interesting. I guess uh, we we brought up the one dude where the guy that wants the two hundred two hundred dollars so he can zombie up this goat they use the the goat as the uh the zombie powder test okay so this this con artist voodoo guy who you think is just a con artist because you know bill pullman marks the goat's feet so he knows you know this is the goat and the guy brings him another goat and bill pullman looks at its foot the mark's not there and he's like wait a minute this isn't the resurrected goat you ate the other one Oh. <laughs> Maybe, probably. I I would. It looks tasty. Well, Bill yeah. Pullman does it in a very showy way too. When the guy he drinks the guy's poison, dude. I I liked how they developed this this character. He goes from this kind of con artist to later in the movie when they're actually preparing the poison. I mean, I thought this this was when the editing really hit for me. Oh, this, he's a great character, and his his from development that. from going from like kind of sleazy con artist to almost good guy helping Bill Pullman out. Just it, tell them my name. <laughs> yeah, he's cuz yeah, he's actually doing it now for just more than money. And... Yeah, well he's you know, he gets that idea that this could be something bigger. That he something he does can reach the wider world. He's like, "Why do you want to kill somebody so bad? Like you must have like a really bad enemy." Yeah. And that's when, like, you know, Bill Pullman kind of confides to him. I'm not going to kill somebody. I'm trying to help people. Yeah. The middle of this film is the best part. Yeah. It's where it really, it really starts picking up here for me. The, the whole montage of them making the poison leading to 
him going all the way to where he gets back into Boston is probably my favorite section of the entire film. Yeah. Because, I mean... I mean, that's about the time that, you know, the chief of the secret police starts messing with him, and... I like that guy. Oh, he, he does a great performance. His eyes looks wild. And that dream when... Right before he wakes up and he's framed with the decapitated body. Oh, yeah, the sister, yeah. Where you see that chief of police, like, throwing the dirt down onto the cross hole in the coffin. Dude, the dream sequences, I thought they were better than Nightmare on Elm Street, man, in terms of, like, visual... Visually, yeah. Uneasiness. Yeah. Not in terms of, like, just, ooh, this is scary, this is bloody, this is graphic and horrific. I mean, but they were going for different things, but... I do, yeah, I... These were oh man, like when he's elegantly creepy. I liked how the sequences. I felt like each sequence was constructed more claustrophobic than the next. Yeah, and it builds until the moment Bill Pullman is put into the coffin. Oh yeah, which is really cool. Uh, that's creepy as crap. If you've got a claustrophobic fear in your body, you start going, "Oh my god, I, I would go insane." Yeah, he gets he gets sprayed with that poison. It, that's when you get the famous part from the trailer. I'm right. not, you know, don't bury me. I'm not dead. And when that that police, that the secret police chief guy is like fucking with him and talking to him when he's just like, yeah, he's just laying there. It, oh, it just, it, it just, it just builds and it gets worse and it gets worse to the point where once he gets, oh man, once he gets lowered into that uh, the coffin, the spider starts coming up, dude. Every time I watch this movie, I'm like, oh my god, dude, look. Spider leg, do not land on his eyeball. <laughs> do not land on his eyeball. You know what I mean? It's so close, well, and those shots a, are so cool. Well, that's such a cool little touch, too, that special chief police dude is like, I'm going to put this in here with you. What so that when you, So after you're insane and you finally get the motion back in your arms, you've got to deal with the spider. Although, they didn't really do anything with the spider. No, yeah, after crazy dude digs him up. Yeah, Christoph digs him up, and then I was I was a little disappointing. I was kind of hoping, but it is like you know, you speaking of Spectre earlier, it's very like uh, I forget what the Bond movie is. I think it's the first one. I think it's uh, Doctor No, where they release the tarantula on him. Kind of had that feel to it, man. But just not being able to move, and then the fact that even if you could move, you're in a fucking coffin. What are you gonna do, man? Like. Yeah, I remember first seeing it, thinking that he was gonna like try to have to rip his way out, and he would see like you tear his hands up. And I really like the the buried alive scene, but I think there's the two movies that I re- think do it a little bit better than this. Um, is that movie Buried with Ryan Reynolds? I have not seen it. That's really good, and um, the Vanishing. Both of those, I think those those have buried alive scenes that are really really well done. But this is this is also good. Third act. What did you think of this climax, Benson? As much as I like this movie, the third act is a little, a little weak to me. Like I, I, you know, all the stuff. Bill Pullman getting buried, all that stuff's fun. But when he gets out and he he goes, the the revolution's happening. People are running everywhere, and he goes to the secret police dude's place, and they fight. Weird lights happen, and. I, I just, it just that's why I'm saying that to me, if when he got there, you know, it just been a fight. Like the the soul stuff just wasn't part of it. Chairs weren't flying around, and like you know, as it turns out, that all of this was just people are crazy and believe in their belief is making it 
more real to them, but in reality, it was just the poison. And I, yeah, maybe they would have let people down, but I just, I've never been a fan of the way, because especially the part where he fought, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm buying it, I'm buying it, the, the spirits attack him, he falls onto the head of the stack of skulls, he, gets he burned catches up. on fire, yeah. he vanishes, and then now he jumps through a window, and, like, why did he vanish? You see, that's the part, that's where I'm kind of like, breaking the jars, it's kind of like one of those, it's a ghost movie cliche. Like, yeah. I understand it needs to happen. I understand why it's happening. I'm not in love with it, but I, I accept it. But then when he goes upstairs and he goes to the chair, and this is the chair where they, they, they nailed his scrotum. Through his scrotum. Know? Yeah, it's just, I'm with you. I don't, like I, that scene, least favorite part of the whole movie. That scene could have been completely cut out. He had that one scene in the chair, and they're making it like the chair is this huge, like, icon for him right. to overcome right maybe during the other cut of the movie the chair played a bigger part yeah that's very true i don't but to me like like i don't like the 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 spike flying around stopping in midair and <laughs> it's it like it goes yeah, from like it goes either. from this kind of scientific horror movie to carry all of a sudden well it kind of goes into nightmare on elm street you know where it just it's like after she burns freddy and freddy goes up to her room or she goes up to the room where Freddy's in her on top of her mom. Right. It's just like that. You know what I mean? Where it's like. But uh, it works in Nightmare where here it's like. Well, that's because there you're like, oh, this is dreams. This may be dreams. Right. This may be not be. What is this? I understand it's spirit world, but did this guy die and come back as a spirit? Is he a poltergeist now at this point? Burned up poltergeist. Did he come back as a Freddy Krueger but the but thing it, I don't understand is like he broke he breaks the jars right right which are spirits that are supposed to the, stop him the guy had stolen yeah and there's all they, of they them. catch him on fire and yeah he burns up so why is he coming back I don't I don't know it makes absolutely no sense to me poor director in a room full of producers and they go you got to have that one last scare I think that's exactly have him, it you yeah. got to get him in the chair and let let Bill Pullman nail through his dick. Wes Craven was like, all right, look, uh, when we put that part in screen, they always come, come back from one last scare. Okay, look, I had this one bad experience and strip it in the rainbow. Uh, that is how it feels, unfortunately. You know, that's yeah, I mean, just in my imagination, and it may, it may, I may be completely wrong and it could have sucked, but just like the revolutions happen and this guy's pissed off a lot of people. I, I would have been very satisfied if Bill Pullman confronted him they have a little altercation, and then people break in, and they drag the guy to the chair and just, you know, whatever they want to do to him. Uh, yeah, I would have been totally fine with that. You know what? We didn't even talk about that. What did you think of the like the whole revolution starting in Haiti and how that was handled? For what they could do, I thought it was handled fine. You know, on on a lot of movies, I think I would fault them for how the, just just kind of came out of fucking nowhere. But I really liked it for this because it it actually made. Well, it, it made the climax it, have a lot more it's, urgency. It's sort of mentioned in the background. Yeah, it is mentioned. And it's then, not like, you're right. And then it does just blow up. But at the same time, I, mean, I, I can I can see the point of like if you're that character and it's mentioned and you know you see it passing in the news and then it suddenly is happening. It is kind of coming out of nowhere. It just made that intensity because and it gives it that little yeah. bit more of like you know because that revolution really happened and 
So now you're you're like, oh, so this was happening at the same time? There was like spirit dogs and jaguars and... The actual production, there was a revolution that was also going on, and they left and finished their last couple... I think they finished the last month in the Dominican Republic. Really? Man, I do... I do feel like these producers kind of got in really hardcore in this last act of this film and were like, look, we let you make this middle chunk of the movie the way you wanted, and, and but I, we need this to sell. Yeah, and I'm not saying that it's the actual like producer. No, 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 no. The, somebody the from the studio. Yeah. I really feel like they they pressured him and like, well, we want this to be like Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, I agree. We're giving you this much money. Okay, yeah, dead people coming back, that's cool, but make it like Nightmare on Elm Street. I, man, I forget who the head is, uh, whoever the head was at Universal, but, man, in the, in the late 80s going into the 90s, man, dude, they, these guys loved horror. We got a Phantasm sequel out of Universal. They gave uh, John Carpenter a contract to make They Live, and I forget what the other films he made in that series were. Um, and then, you know, Wes Craven got people under the stairs in this movie, so... It's nice to see that the studio was giving these directors and filmmakers the opportunity and the money to make the film and sort of in hindsight wish they could have stepped back a little bit. Let, uh, yeah, exactly, right. Let let the filmmakers make their movie. Yeah. See what happens. I well, I, I guess that's the trade-off, right? You right. get a little you, bit more money, but it, you got to sacrifice. That's the business end of it is that you know, you're 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 getting this money to make a horror film they're going to want a horror film. I'll be honest, man. All of our critiques and things, all that aside, this is a really fun, entertaining movie. And to you watch. know, really, I mean, I'm not meaning them as critiques. And I mean, to me, this, well, no, it, like, it's just well, they, sort they of they are critiques. They're like you know, well, it's, it's opinions that are, that are fun to talk about. Yeah, exactly. That's the way I look at it because I enough. love this movie. I I would recommend it to anyone that likes horror films. It's fun and creepy. I mean, it's what you want out of. But it's also interesting. It's got a little history to it, and a little science to it. And dude, Wes Craven is such an important voice in horror. Yeah, I mean, I think he gave three of some of the greatest fucking and dude, two of the greatest horror movies of all time, hands down. The fact that you could make one movie, one movie to stand the test with the impact of a Freddy Krueger. Really, Freddy, it, that's not just heart. That is pop culture. Oh, yeah, that became a pop cultural icon. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to make a movie about dreams. And, 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 and can you imagine and making And fight that? the system. Have people tell you this is not going to work. And you believe in it enough that eventually you get to make it. Man, dude, I feel so sorry for Craven. I'm glad Scream happened to him, dude. I am Me so too. glad that that did happen. Because he got he, so fucked on Nightmare. Well, he was, and he was also very frustrated. You can tell, like, he wanted to branch out as a filmmaker. Frustrated or bitter? Or both? Probably a little both. Yeah, man, he was a little... It was just sort of this rocky pigeonholed into, hey, why don't you make this scary movie? I am glad, though, at the end of his career, we kind of, we kind of all came together and celebrated all of his work, and he made he got to make Scream, and I'm glad that he well, got to it, be involved with some yeah, of the remakes of after, his films. Well, after Scream, I, I think pretty much everybody agreed at that point, okay, this guy is the guy, let you do what you want to do. I'm glad he got that, you know? 
Yeah, he got he kind of got the career some, revitalization. He made some really there. good ones too. Like I mean, some that people really look over, like Red Eye, is awesome. Oh my gosh, right, dude? Yeah. That is a good little Hitchcockian thriller. Yeah, and he made that the same year as Cursed, and it's just like, wow, you oh, made wow. Cursed <laughs> and Red Eye all in the same. Year. You know, I mean, like. Horror comedy and then straight horror thriller. But you know? yeah, at least at that point he was getting to kind of do what he wanted to do. I feel like he always wanted to do more dramas. Yeah, well, he he openly said it. You're right. You said he got pigeonholed, and it is a shame that that happened. And he did have a lasting impact on an entire industry. So, well, that's the reason I brought up Red Eye too, because yeah. it's not a straight up horror film. It's a it's a successful movie that. Yeah, it's true. Is it's a thriller? It's not a horror film. It's more of a you know, it's a different kind of movie. He had that music from the heart, so everything else was in the heart genre. Yeah, I mean, that one didn't get a lot of fond memories. What music from the heart? Yeah, I only saw it once. I saw it when it came out. I actually went and, and saw that in theaters because I was like, "Come on, Craven!" It made no money, and I was so disappointed for him. I, you know, it almost. I think it almost made thirty million, man. Almost really? Yeah. I mean, look, the Weinsteins released it as a favor. They're like, oh, you know, made us over $300 million with three horror films. So you can go do whatever the fuck you want, buddy. All right, cool. Scream 3. I, I just always, Scream 3. I just always heard that it didn't make any money, so it didn't, it, it didn't open up any doors for him. Well, I mean, he just, did that in between right. Scream 2 and Scream 3. Well, you think 3. about what we're talking about here. We're talking about Wes Craven, one of the most well-known directors of our time. Yeah, okay. And just think about how ruthless this business is. This is the guy that made Nightmare on Elm Street, and for years after that is having to fight to get what what he wants made. And still, you know what, man? Even when he was in the horror genre, even when he's making blockbuster horror movies, no, okay, yeah, still having blockbuster to horror movies, fighting to get his next movie made. Yeah, and dude, like, still the budgets. Like, he made Scream. Budget ten million, made a hundred million. That's ten times in domestic dollar return alone. Right. Scream two. Why is this guy not getting like fifty million to make a movie? <laughs> I mean, I I know it's a horror movie, but come on, man, give this guy whatever he wants, man. Like he proved himself. He's freaking. Well, he was. He was one of the most talented masters of suspense that we had, man. especially in the nineties. Like there wasn't a lot. Carpenter stopped turning him out, and Craven came back to save us. I don't know. I mean, this is just speculation, but to me, I feel like he kind of achieved it with Nightmare, and then he was trying to branch out into something else, and then he kind of really came into his own with Scream. Nightmare, I think he was trying to find different things. I think Shocker was the one that he was just like, okay, I want to make money. You know, I feel, and we talked about that on that, that podcast, but... No, Shocker's definitely the one that you can see, like, uh, well, they're making all this money off of my character, Freddy, so I'm going to make up this character and yeah. keep the rights to it. But this film, I actually feel like he was man, he was really trying to trying to do something different. Yeah, this, this felt like he wanted to do, like, a serious movie in the horror genre. Yeah, I feel like, I really wish he could have made the exact movie he wanted to, man. Cause... Yeah. But hey, what we got was great, though. It is... It is... It's a weird mix of tone. It's kind of like a little time capsule. What do you mean by that? Well, like, you know, at his point in his career at that time, he's trying to do something else. Oh, a time there, capsule for Wes Craven. Yeah, and if uh, you look at this movie, this you can kind of see where he's at in his career. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, he, from a very, like, this is our yeah, Wes Craven he, artistically. He's, he's big enough to give him $7 million to go make this Hades zombie movie. 
Yeah. But not big enough to have that final cut. This is the movie I wanted to make. That's a good way of putting it. Time capsule. So that's going to do it for us tonight. If you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew. Crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E, extra E at the end, at gmail.com. You can drop us a line. And guys, please, if you could, just leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps us out, helps people find out about the show and puts us in the top of those iTunes search results, which are oh so important, apparently. And while we're wrapping all this stuff out, we're going to leave you guys with a little bit of this uh, soundtrack here. It doesn't really scream Haiti for me in the film, but it, it man, this is a really nice theme. I don't want to take that away. Um, Mr. Brad Fidel, who is the composer on this, did a really tremendous job. I think it's really creepy. Um, this is the main title from the Serpent and the Rainbow soundtrack by Mr. Brad Fidel. Enjoy. Enjoy.